The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, as if the world isn't crazy enough. (laughs) Actually, today's show, although we're going to be talking about um, one of the uh, craziest, most sociopathic, violent... um, killer, um, it, it, compared to some of the things that are going on in the news today, it almost seems like comic relief. Today's show is called Charles Manson Killer Groom. Killer, wink, wink. In other words, <laughs> that's, a, that's a pun intended. Um, nice guys can't de- get dates, but serial killer Charles Manson has women dying to marry him, most notably, most currently. Afton Elaine Burton. Um, it's very interesting. After I've been searching through news reports um, since it was first announced in November that they had taken out a license, a permission to get married, um, to check up on what, in fact, has happened. And even though there are some scattered news reports um, saying that she appeared outside of her home uh, I think this weekend with a ring on the, on her wedding ring finger. Uh, so some people, some news agencies are saying that they are married. But I would like to bet, and I'll, we'll, we'll discuss this with my guest today, um, Marlon Marionick, uh, I, I really doubt that they are married for a number of reasons. We're going to be talking about the, this. Uh, Afton Elaine Burton, a.k.a. Star. Supposedly, that's the um, name that Charles Manson gave her. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think, well, we'll talk about this, but I think it's hard to tell which one is more manipulative of the other um, because certainly he realized, Charles Manson did, that um, that besides her professed love for him, there's undoubtedly a motive of fame and fortune involved in this, as well as her disturbed childhood. Um, Without further ado, however, I want to introduce a man who has um, seen, gotten to meet Manson, gotten to know Manson, uh, up close and personal, literally, um, which began, his journey began at eight years old when he discovered a beat-up copy of Helter Skelter. And, you know, what's interesting, Marlon, is that um, the same curiosity that you had as a child uh, not only encouraged you to follow through to meet um, Charles Manson, but also to become a mental health professional. Yeah. Um, in hindsight, when I... This whole thing is it's, it's such an unbelievable story, which is kind of how it became a book. 
Yes, I just wanted to mention that Charles Manson Now is the name of the book that Marlon wrote about Charles Manson. Go ahead. Yeah, so basically what had happened is I was working on a bunch of film projects and I ended up knowing or meeting one of Charlie's friends and they had kept in contact since way before the murders had happened and, and throughout all his, his time in prison. And um, through this character, um, Charlie found out that I he had this connection in Canada, which was me, that was involved with film, and he wanted to do this final interview. So I just kind of, it's Wait, kind I'm of a long to... story, but eventually, um, on uh, totally unprepared for this, he calls me and he wants me to um, dress up like a soldier. Okay, wait, 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 Marlon, like a... let me, it's, you're going too quickly. I, I want to okay. understand this. Um, you, you, okay, you live in Canada and you were yes. uh, working on a film project. And coincidentally, yes. there was a man who had been a friend of Manson's before his murder spree, his famous murder spree. Yeah. And so how, and why did this friend connect you to Manson? How did that happen? Basically, he had told Charlie that he was working on this documentary, and Charlie documentary, kind of took that information. A and documentary about Manson or just some mm-hmm. other documentary? Oh, this is just another documentary. It was actually um, part of my second book. I did a book called Undis- uh, Both the Origins of AIDS with the Two Longest Living AIDS Survivors. So I was actually doing that way back then, mm-hmm. and we were, we were filming, you know. Uh-huh. And so... This guy had known Charlie before everything had happened and had mentioned that, you know, this documentary, you know, it never happened, but it was in the works. And so Charlie called me, and, and it was a kind of a bizarre interview. He was kind of feeling me out. He wanted to know, you know, what my favorite insects were and my stance on the environment and kind of weird things like that. And, and he wanted to dress up like a general and command all the armies in the war in the world to stop fighting each other and to start fighting pollution you know that was, that was kind of his thing and so I kind of said well I can get behind that and and the thing was um I've, I'm, I'm, a psych, I'm a psychiatric nurse I've been doing that for 20 years and when you have the opportunity to talk to someone like him of course you know I, I, I went for it so this was when when he called you um probably about six years ago now so okay so so had you? So you had never written to him before that? No, nothing. No. Huh? And he just called you out of the blue. Yes. And it was just sort of a. It was just it kind of the whole thing sort of struck you because you already had this curiosity in him from having read the book Helter Skelter. Yeah, and of course I've I've kind of followed him through. You know, he's a you know pop icon, so I knew about him, but I didn't know the extent of things. I didn't know who was involved in the crimes, who the family were, you know. Yeah. I was really green with all, I kind of got a crash course as I went into doing the book. And, um, and um, so it took a while to establish a relationship with them. And we did everything we could to get a camera in to do this interview. And in the end, there's a law that you can't interview specific inmates in California. They just won't let it happen. Well, okay, wait. So why did he pick you, though, to, to tell you about his ideas about having the armies um, fight pollution? Why did he think that you would be particularly amenable to helping him in that? He thought that since I was in Canada, there was some kind of world press and he couldn't keep out the media and I could associate myself with the media here and, and we'd be this force that could go in and do this interview, right? So he was, he was adamant that... Um, 
That, and he wanted, and I think it was just because he doesn't really know anyone in Canada, and, and for what he's, um, I don't want to say, he kind of makes weird connections with things. So it could be where I live and my name, and it, it could be all kind. I have no idea. I've never asked him directly, like, why did you decide to call? You know, uh-huh. I just, yeah. So, okay, so he wanted you to help him to do an interview to talk, so that he could talk about what it is mm-hmm. that he wanted to have happen in terms of the environment. Yes. And, okay, and you try, but in, I, I, in California, that, okay, that, but, so how did the, once you both discovered that that wasn't going to be doable as far as the California laws, what, how did you, um, what kept the relationship going? So during all, this was a process, and we had, you know, we'd consulted with everybody, and, and like a lot of the networks and the BBC was very close. I thought, you know, they were going to be able to push through and do something. And so I was talking to him a lot on the phone, so we were getting to know each other. And then he reluctantly agreed to meet with me. Um, and he hadn't seen every, anybody for like a year and a half at that time. So for him to go out into the visiting room to see somebody is an ordeal because it means... Um, being strip searched, a couple, you know, checkpoints, and he, it's just, uh, he doesn't like going through that. So when I met with him and, and uh, he, um, I basically told him, like, well, you know, like this, this interview is not going to happen. What do you think about doing a book? And, and initially the book was supposed to be authorized, and all I can really say is uh, we didn't have communications in order, and there's some media stuff about him and cell phones, and... Um, in the end, I just recorded our phone conversations, and he told me, you know, you, I got to write about myself and figure out the story from there. And that's that's kind of where the idea of uh, the whole journey and and you know, Wait, finding out you, more about this guy through his his you know friends and yeah. Well, he of, said I've got to write about myself, meaning that he, Charles Manson, had to write about himself, or you had to write about yourself. I'd write about myself. He had no way of knowing what what I was writing or what I was going to do because, you know, phone calls are limited to 15 minutes. You're not allowed to bring any recording devices. Even a pen and paper is extremely, you know, you can't really bring that in to write down what he's saying or anything. So I had to rely on our phone conversation. So he would often call like three or four times during a day, and I would get a lot of information that way. So did he know that you were going to be using this information for a book about him? Yeah, absolutely. And, and at any time... Um, he's under a lot of pressure and a lot of stress and it came up like, you know, you know, why are you running off and doing this book? And I'm like, you know, just say it, man. And I'm, I'm done. Like I hadn't, I didn't, I wasn't that attached to the pro, you know, I could have, you know, bowed out at any time. And so then, um, um, so in the end, did he, <laughs> so did he give blessings? Or did he? Did he write a? Did he write something? I mean, he can obviously. I'm sure he must have been writing you letters, right? Uh, mostly, mostly phone conversations, and he'd say, you know, I got to, like I'd ask him questions, and it was very important for him to have me understand what it was like for him, like how he grew up, what the prison's about, how you know, uh, how his um, the man is timeless. Like it, when you talk to him, you immediately know who you're talking to. He's just kind of got that whole voice and he talks like a guy from the 60s right and he's he, he kind of goes on these tangents but after a while those tangents aren't as crazy as you would think like the uh, you kind of start understanding the way he expresses himself and what he's trying to say mm-hmm. so a, a lot of it was like a back and forth like that and um i was able to 
um, go back from his childhood and, and, you know, come up to where we are now. Well, that and, is- and so I, I, was, I was often interested about different things, like you know, the whole cult thing and, like, his involvement with, like, the process church or the, you know, Church of Satan, all those kind of things were fascinating to me. So I, I wanted to know, you know, how, how, do you, how do you know the key people in Scientology? <laughs> you know, that, and, yeah, that kind of thing. So. And so did he, so when it was all finished, mm-hmm. um, did you send him a copy? Yeah. And what was his reaction? Um, he liked it. He, he said that uh, I'm righteous. He knows I could have made him look like an, an idiot, you know, or, uh, or uh, this, you know, the, the serial killer. The, um, but that, that wasn't my relationship with the guy. It's not, it, I'm not I probably, it's not at all what people think, you know. It, it's, it's extremely complicated, but having to know the guy and then dealing with what he has to deal with on a very small level, it, it's, it, it kind of, um, I see things quite a bit differently, I'm sure, than, than most people. Well, are you saying, um, did you come to the conclusion that he was innocent? Well, y- yes, and yeah, for the, the crimes he was charged with, I'm not saying he's a great, you know, uh, a role model or someone, or anything like that, but I mean, when you, you go into that time and you look what was happening, and you start talking to people who knew him and, and, and his story and stuff, like basically, uh, I don't really know about the the secondary murders, but I, I, the the whole Tate thing, which is the the big one, they all knew each other. They all partied together. You know, that was his neighborhood. He was like one of those guys. Like, this is a guy who, when he got out of jail, he wanted to be this musician, and he actually worked hard at it. So he was friends with, like, Mama Cass was one of his best friends. You know, Neil Young gave him a motorcycle. He, um, Jim Morrison was one of his friends. Hendrix, like the birds, all of these people kind of hung out and, and wrote song, wrote music together and, you know, uh, Frank Zapp, all, all, all of that kind of stuff. And I think when, you're, you're a psychiatrist, so you might get this. So when, when the guy, he's trying to deal with all of this and there's a lot of pressure on him. And when he was hanging out with these kids and these runaways and criminals and stuff, he was kind of the senior guy. He, was, he had been in and out of jail and he was street smart. And so a lot of these kids came to him for advice and stuff. And I think he kind of played that role as kind of the leader or whatever, but I, he did want to succeed in doing something. And I, I think with all the stress and the drugs and all those kind of things, when you got a guy who's picking up messages from the Beatles and he thinks there's an impending race war and he needs to dig a hole into the center of the earth, you know, underground, it sounds like a psychotic break to me, right? Yeah. You know, and, and I, I think that's kind of what happened. I think, I think, he just couldn't deal with anything anymore and, and kind of got, got ill, basically. And, and I see that daily on my work, right? So it, I, can, I can see the parallels. Uh-huh. So, and, and, and I work a lot with addicts and stuff, and, and that's what this was. Like the, the whole Tate thing was essentially a, a, um, a home invasion. That's what we would call it today. You know, there, there was a lot of drugs and drug dealing going on out of there, and Tex, Wan, Tex Watson wanted in on it. And when they kind of shunned him away, that was the the end result, you know. Well, hmm. Um, so do you think that um, he was given short shrift by his defense, that they should have um, said that he was not guilty by reason of insanity? No, I think he knew he, did, he wasn't there, right? Like how, and, and the guy, it's funny because, he, you know, this whole mastermind criminal thing, He's got to be the most unlucky criminal I'm aware of. It's, it's all, like, if you look at his, 
arrest history. It's all petty crimes, right? And so it's like um, he's in jail for eight murders. Like how? Like how do you command a, a hippie to sh- like a, a drug addict, a junkie to shower, let alone execute murders like this? It doesn't make you know. It just doesn't add up to me. And like, there's not that kind of loyal with that kind of a population, right? And so. When he gets arrested and the way he was behaving and stuff and kind of showboating and, and, and he, he totally believed that, wasn't that he was bulletproof, but he, he completely believes that he didn't do anything wrong. Uh-huh. So he kind of made a, made a mockery of the system, really, and, you know, that was not in his best interest, obviously, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, well, the, you know, we're going to be talking about uh, his fiance later on, yeah. uh, Afton Elaine Burton. I'm, I'm just wondering, after um, what you're saying, did you have you had any contact with her? Yeah, yeah, we're I know her. Yeah, we're friends. You were going to start? You started to say we're friends? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh. Um, no, it's was, like you got. It. When because I was going to say, four, there's there's four characters in my book that have mental illness. It's kind of my world. I, yeah. I I know lots about subcultures and alternative people, and I'm uh, you know I'm I'm involved with music and all kinds of art. You know, it's kind of it's kind of whatever. You know, and so when all of this kind of happened, Charlie has there's I don't want to say there's an inner circle because then it looks like he's got this culture family going, but there are people that he trusts on the outside and that kind of protect him and that you kind of have to work with these people and kind of get the nod to go in and meet with him. He's not going to randomly pick a guy from Canada to visit, you know, no matter what he thinks he needs to, there's kind of a screening process, you know? Right. And so through all of this, that's when I, you know, I've, I've met star several times and talked with her and you know, I, I kind of know what so she's about. Been, and have you been, ha- I, did she contact you? Because did she read your book and contact you, or did she? I guess I or I guess meet you through him. How did that come about? Um, when we were when it was time to try and set up a meeting with Char, like a visit, um, I had to meet with Gray Wolf, who is another character in the the whole Manson story. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Oh. Well, okay, we're getting the music that we need to take a break now. This is turning out to be more fascinating than I anticipated. Okay, um, my guest is Marlon Marinick. I mean, it was pretty fascinating enough. He's the author of Charles Manson Now, um, gotten to meet and um, get inside the head of Charles Manson. We're talking today about Charles Manson Killer Groom, and um, uh, apparently Marlon has insight into his... Uh, fiance as well. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll free right now 1 866 472 5787. And ask our all star team to answer your questions. That's 1 866 472 5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. 
Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the Terrorism Hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking today about Charles Manson, killer, groom, um, with my guest, Marlon Marinick, who is the author of uh, the book Charles Manson Now, which he um, wrote after getting to meet Charles Manson up close and personal and, and uh, conducting incredibly, an incredible number of telephone interviews with him as well. Um, and to my surprise, I have just <laughs> discovered that he is uh, friends with the woman who is um, claiming to be engaged to Charles. I mean, I guess she's engaged, but the question is of whether, whether they're married. I want to talk um, during the rest of the show about, one, Charles's childhood, and two, um, this, this wedding. Um, mm-hmm. I think... You know, one of the reasons why I think that um, there wasn't, there hasn't been a wedding is because, first of all, they're allowed uh, ten guests, apparently, and if to bring in ten guests, and her parents aren't coming, and um, uh, if, if there had actually been a wedding so far, I am sure that there would have been ten guests there, and, and that news of what actually went on at the wedding would have gotten out to the media. I mean, I, be- I believe, because I believe that in part, at least, she is doing this for media attention, her 15 minutes, um, that, that some of the 10 guests would have been the media. But let's, before we get back to her, um, let's talk a little bit about his childhood. You know, I, I think the fact that he apparently never knew his father, his mother rejected him, is that, I don't know if you, did, did he tell you the story? Um, there's a story going around about his mother being an alcoholic and one time selling him for mm-hmm. a pitcher of beer to a waitress. Well, that, yeah, well, I asked him about that because it's, it's a, you know, I thought it was a urban myth or whatever, but basically what happened was his mom used to drink with um, her brother a lot, so, so Charlie's uncle, and they were in a bar somewhere, and the waitress kind of came up to him, and, and he was, like, really small, like maybe a year or so, doesn't even doesn't re, like small enough to not remember really what happened, and and the waitress says, you know, what a cute little baby, you know, can I take him home with me? Just kind of joking around, and his mom says, well, yeah, you can have him for a pitcher of beer, and she's like, okay, you know, and, and got all excited, and they did this deal, and this waitress went home with him, and four or five days later, his uncle sobered up and and decided, like, holy, you know, got to get this kid back, and the way Charlie relayed that story to me is kind of like that was. It, you know, that was his one chance, you know. And then from there, he ended up in a lot of foster homes and he, um, boys' schools, which I'm assuming is kind of the same thing. And, and that's kind of where he had to learn to kind of defend himself and survive, right? It was, it was a pretty harsh growing up for sure. Yes, and he told you about um, being sexually, uh, sexually brutalized mm-hmm. in these homes and, or in these um, boys' homes. Um, 
that he would get into for petty crimes, as you were mentioning before. And then yeah. it's just, just a, he's an, a sad example of um, what happened. I mean, it's kind of like Oliver Twist, but, but on steroids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. And there was one story where him and a, another kid, he's about eight years old, and they're going to do this jailbreak out of a boys' school, and end up getting caught and transferred to a more, you know, more secure, worse place. And, and uh, the other kid that kind of set it all up, you know, got out unscathed, basically. Like that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of markers in his life where things kind of went from bad to worse, almost. Uh-huh. And when you were saying, when you were saying with the waitress that he, the way he told it to you, it was that that was his one chance, meaning that um, that if he had been left with the waitress that maybe he would have had a more he would have been more nurtured as a child and had a grown up in a healthier yeah. way yeah exactly hmm. and, and depending on the day like sometimes um you know uh i asked him if he was a pimp right because i'd read that somewhere yes. and he's like yeah my mom had to hustle to keep me fed and i'm a pimp you know like <laughs> that kind of a thing and then Sometimes he'll, he doesn't, he's got, as dysfunctional as everything is, he's still kind of got that whole family thing and he's respectful to his mother, you know. Well, that's amazing because, I mean, mm-hmm. besides that, the um, incident with the pitcher of beer, um, mm-hmm. I mean, there were other times when she was very rejecting of him, even as he was getting older. But but she was a kid, too, when she had him, more or less, right? Yeah, she was 16, and, okay. Yeah. Okay, so, so she was seventeen when she gave him away for a pitcher of beer. But then, mm. um, but then there were other times when when she. I mean, that's that's part of his whole problem for why he you, became um, so hardened because of being rejected by her. There, there's that, and there, there's all kinds of um, rejection all along the line. I mean, people just continually rip that guy off and screw him over all because of who he is and situation right it's yeah. like it never ends and so for him to trust anybody is, is completely ridiculous and so it's kind of remarkable um our relationship and he still phones by the way i haven't heard from him for like since but six well, weeks okay, or so since good. i have a message for him <laughs> i what, have a message that? i said i'm glad he calls well for yeah uh, for for you but also i have a message for him if he wants to ask about the wedding first of all I'm um, I'm not so sure, certain that he really does want to marry her. I mean, you know that he's given interviews saying that 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 the marriage is really um, what was it for public consumption that he mm-hmm. that it wasn't about love. And I mean, he could be just saying that being uh, being you know trying to be like a tough guy or cool guy or something. But but um, you know the way I see it, and obviously you're a lot closer to the situation. But mm-hmm. uh, having written this book, bad, well, having written Bad Boys, why we love them, how to live with them, and when to leave them, and mm-hmm. then more recently Bad Girls, um, you know, I kind of study these personalities, and it seems yeah. to me there, there's a chapter in my book, in the Bad Boys book, called Lethal Lovers. I talk about twelve different types of bad boys that women fall in love with, and so mm-hmm. the lethal lover is a guy who's in prison. And um, the women who fall in love with them, there, there are, you know, for, for all these women, it has to do with their relationship with their father, just like a bad boy um, becomes a bad boy because of his dysfunctional relationship with his mother. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
So I think that um, for women who typically love these men who are in prison, uh, first of all, you know, have come from a very dysfunctional childhood where, yep. um, you know, there's a lot of um, cruelty, a lot of coldness in the family. Um, what's interesting, I was reading an article about how um, Afton um, Star, let's call her, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what she wants to be called, um, since Star, when she, when she was a teenager, she started writing to him when she was 16. And mm-hmm. when she was a teenager, she talks about how when she was a teen, um, I, I, I have this quote, let's see. She was um, telling one of the newspapers, um, I was forcefully excommunicated from my friends for a long period of time in my teen years. I couldn't have any contact at all with any of them. It had a big effect on my life. Now, her father denies forcing her to spend time in her room, but, you know, what's a father going to do? <laughs> going to say, I mean, he's not yeah. going to admit it. Um, so, I mean, here she was, forcefully, whatever that may mean, maybe abuse, um, kept excommunicated from her friends during her teens. So she, she, she starts writing to Charles Manson, who is forcefully excommunicated from his friends, you know, from the outside world in prison, she identifies with him. Women mm-hmm. who fall in love with these men, want, on the one hand, want to rescue them, um, feel that they're their only, that the man is going to be depend, so dependent upon them. And also, it's like the women who want to be seen as the most desirable, most powerful woman on the planet, because it's like um, a uh, lion walking around the village and if she's the one who pulls the thorn out of the lion's paw, um, you know, with Charles Manson being the lion, um, then she becomes the most powerful woman in the village. And so, well, the, go ahead. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll back things up. I, I've always been fascinated by the people who are interested in, in Charlie and the people around him and, and the mail he gets and, and that kind of thing. And the most mail he gets... It's from adolescence, which I, I found really bizarre. And, and a lot of people who are um, kind of see him as this anti-hero kind of a thing. And so he gets a lot of um, people who are suicidal and stable, you know, mm-hmm. that, that whole genre of people. And what, what hap- the whole thing with, with Star is, like, Charlie doesn't... I, I, I'm, I'm probably the only person professionally who has never screwed that guy over and... He would probably tell tell you I did because <laughs> I rushed things and went ahead and did you know uh-huh. did the book before it was ready. But I never when you're you know you're under, when you're under um, contract and you have deadlines, you kind of got to do what you do. And he was aware of all of that, you know. And and um, so I think I think with Star, she's like part of his inner world, and she really knows the guy. And and the, the, a big part of this whole marriage thing is he kind of needs someone on the outside to look out for him because if he files a motion or whatever, it, it, you know, it's only you know, so far. Who's ever on the outside dealing with that stuff would be a lot more powerful and and you know dealing with that end of things. So I think that was a big reason. And this was never meant to go public. They had they had filed the paperwork for a marriage license, and then someone tipped off a reporter or whatever. The story got out, and then. They, you know, someone, uh, oh, you can have 10, you know, guests at a wedding. Who's the 10 people, you know, but they, they were trying to do this all in a lowdown. They didn't want any media attention, you know, it wasn't, it was, that, that wasn't any of that at all. And, you know, one day she's just kind of going to check the mail or whatever, and all of a sudden she gets ambushed by all these paparazzi and says a couple things, right? So, um, and, and, and the whole piece where 
Charlie denied their marriage or whatever. He kind of he's, he's smart enough to know that once the media gets a hold of something like this, it's going to get stupid. I, I think that reporter had spent like a year and a half or whatever on that article and kind of befriended them, right? And they kind of felt loose and comfortable with them and maybe mm-hmm. suggested or said a few things and, and got, got kind of taken that way. So, well, yeah. okay. so well, I think... Well, what, um, you said, you know, of all the people like, who write to him, yeah. what made him... Uh, and I understand, you know, it is true that prisoners need somebody on the outside who they can trust. Yeah. But... But because a lot of these things, appeals and so on that they want to make or, mm-hmm. you know, don't ever somehow magically disappear, they never make it to the proper channels, you know? Yeah. So, yes, that's true. What made him pick her? Out of all the letters, and I'm sure all the women who are writing him, I'm mm-hmm. sure he's gotten other marriage proposals or other women who wanted to come visit him and so on, um, what made him pick her to go ahead and, and, and um, meet her and, and continue the relationship with her? It wasn't a picking thing. I, I mean, I think that the invite was there, and she went and saw him, and they they got along, or what? You know, I, I can't really speak on that. But when I like, he does speak highly of her, and he, you know, sometimes he honestly believes that that's the only person that he can really trust. You know, he's he's told me those kind of things. Like she, and and I know everyone's thinking she wants fame and all this kind of stuff. She's and not. A, it's not like that. You know, she she wants to be left alone. She's not. You know, she could have sold him out for a lot, you know, all kinds of things if she wanted to. It's not, it's not about that, you know. And I, I can't speak to their relationship. I really don't know. You know, it's not, not my thing. But, but, I, but I mean, you were saying before that he doesn't mm-hmm. allow, like he didn't have visitors for a long time and mm-hmm. so on. I mean, there, there must have been other women who sent their pictures. And oh, who, all the time. Like okay. I, I, I have some of that mail. Like some of that's been sent out to me. Yeah. So it's like. Um, so how? I, I'm sure if he would have invited other women to visit him, they would have. Some of them would oh, yeah. have at least. So how did it end up with this woman? I, I don't think it was like part of the grand plan. I think like any relationship, it evolves, right? And and I think her level of trust, you know, that that that's a big thing for the guy. So I think well, I think that's what, it. He 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 trusts her, right? Well, here's what I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And if you want to share it with Charlie, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> remember, in my book, Bad Girls, Why Men Love Them and How Good Girls Can Learn Their Secrets. Okay, I talk about 12 different kinds of bad girls as well mm-hmm. and, um, and how they seduce the men. And I did interviews with over 100 men for this book. Yeah. And uh, smart men, you know, good-looking men. I mean, they mm-hmm. all had, these weren't like, you know, these weren't jerks or these weren't... <laughs> um, I mean, these men had lots of things going for them, and yet they were hornswoggled, you know, they were manipulated, seduced by these bad girls for, for 12 different reasons, you know, like there's yeah, okay. the gold digger and, um, and, and various other, um, uh, the, well, the, um, the um, marriage, the, the women who want to trap a guy into um, husband hunter and trapper is that mm-hmm. type. Okay, so as examples. Now, um, what I think is that that um, Gold Afton is mm-hmm. smarter than, and I've seen, I, I watched her on video. Um, yeah. You know, she comes across as kind of innocent and and down home and all of that. But mm-hmm. I think that um, she's a lot more wily than that. And I think that she had that he, you know, you'd think this man who's supposed to be the baddest bad bad man of all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
you'd think that he would be the least likely to fall for a bad girl. But I think she has him hornswoggled to some degree. That isn't to say that I, I don't believe that she thinks he's innocent. I mean, I think mm-hmm. she wants to rescue him. I think she probably does, um, to a large extent, believe that he's innocent and want to prove to the world. You know, that would, boy, do you see what I'm saying? If she proved to the world, she took the thorn out of his paw, she proved to the world that he was innocent, you know, um, that would make her very important. Um, but mm-hmm. So let's say she really has her heart in the right place as far as wanting to help him in these ways. But, you know, um, there's also a lot in it for her. She, I, don't, I don't think, I mean, she seems to have had this um, rather difficult or troubled, to, shall we say, the least, dysfunctional relationship with her parents, despite their trying to make it seem like this was the, uh, you know, father knows best family. Um, I think she's... Um, she's being manipulative with him. I think part, I think it's both. I think that she's drawn to him because of things that happened in her childhood, um, particularly with her father. But I think also that there's a part of her that is wily and that realizes that if she marries him, um, besides satisfying all these psychological reasons in her, um, she will also have access to things that nobody else will have access to, and that is going to make her very valuable, not only because of getting 15 minutes of fame, but there's a lot of money in books, movies. Um, she's, she's cementing her place, albeit uh, a, you know, a, a strange place, in history. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that this bad, you know, the man who's supposed to be the baddest of the bad is falling for it. So I would tell Charlie <laughs> mm-hmm. to... Um, to be a little careful, and and yes, um, you know, once she, once they're married, um, or even at this point, but but I know I, I think she really does want to. It, it certainly would cement her place and cement what she wants to do much better if they were actually married, even though they can't have um, relations, sexual relations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that, that he is being manipulated by her to get married. Uh, I, it was probably his idea. Absolutely. Okay. And, why and do you, he, he why? still believes in a hierarchy, like the man is the boss kind of thing, right? And you've got to remember that this guy knows how to read people and survive, and he's been through it all, like the ultimate survivor. So I think he's well aware of what he's in for. And I, I, I just, I, I hear you, and, and that's kind of the the public perception of things, but um, I'll leave it open to I really don't know. <laughs> okay, well, we can, this is a perfect place to be taking a break then. My guest is Marlon Marinick. His book is called Charles Manson da- Now, um, mm-hmm. and it, it is now, even to this, to this present moment, which, of course, will give you much more um, uh, information, much more to write, to write in a follow-up book, which uh, would be helpful for both of you. So mm-hmm. stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? 
Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Hi, I'm Sam Nussbaum, WellPoint's Chief Medical Officer. We proudly support the March of Dimes mission to improve the health of babies and fight premature birth. We're helping the March of Dimes fund breakthroughs in research and community programs that help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together to provide children with a healthier start in life. Visit marchofdimes.org. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're having, I'm having, I'm fascinated today by my guest, Marlon Marinick. He's the author of the book called Charles Manson Now, and he's going to be doing another one called Charles Manson Now Now, or Really Now. <laughs> um, and we're talking, before the break, we were talking about Charles's um, potential, <laughs> theoretical, <laughs> possible upcoming nuptials to Afton Elaine Burton, who I have tagged as a bad girl, <laughs> and, and Marlon disagrees with me. Um, but, you know, you know what's, one of the things I found really interesting, you have a picture um, mm-hmm. about with, with Charles from when you visited him, yep. and um, when, when you compare, have you looked at your picture with Charles, to, comparing it to the picture of Star with Charles? Because your picture with Charles, you both look relaxed. Um, mm-hmm. Star's picture with Charles, he has his arms crossed in front of him. Now, as a mental health professional, it doesn't mm-hmm. really take... Um, I'm sure you, you know, just like I know, that that is a, you know, that's a, a defensive posture. That's like warding people off, warding her off, warding off the whole, you know, being take, having a photo taken with her. What do you make oh, of he- that photo? Char, he he likes having fun with things. So he's uh, like, I have about I don't even know, probably fifteen photos with him or something. Yes. And they're all kind of goofy. He'll make you, you know, yeah. So that's just kind of posing and being stupid, and this is kind of kind of what he does. I, I don't read anything more into that really. Like, well, how I don't, is that photo? But, but then I've seen probably you know a hundred photos of those two together. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, you know the one that I'm talking about. I mean, yeah, I haven't yeah, I seen it. I haven't seen any others. How did that photo or any of those photos get to the media? Because I know that when you take, I mean, I, when you take a photo in prison with a prisoner, as I have mm-hmm. done, um, you are the one who walks out with that photo, the per, the visitor. Not yeah. Well, what happens is, <laughs> yeah, it's more insider information. So basically, yeah. you got to collect like. Um, 
the inmate has to buy coupons or like a buck each or something, like a ticket. And yes. the photographer comes around during your visit. Right. And visitors are wide open and they're like five or six hours long. It's like a, it's, it's a, it's a full day. And so you would take like four or five and then Charlie might not like some of them and he'll kind of, you know, he'll just mention to you, like, I don't really like this one, right? And so those never go public kind of thing. But he would have liked those photos, so maybe, you know, and he would have said, you know, this is cool to use. But my point is that Star would have had to have given them to the media. Yeah, they would have came from her, yeah. Yes, I, I think okay. they came from the Rolling Stone story that, that uh, Star did. Okay, well, I'm just bringing this up because I, as my point that she does want her 15 minutes or longer. Yeah. I mean, but, it's not Charles who would have sent that photo or photos to the media. But he approves it, you know. But like he's well, the guy who says, like, she's going to tell him, okay, this reporter, but he wants a photo, you know, which one should I send? He said, well, that one's cool. You know, that's because he, and it, that's not commanding or anything. It's just being respectful. And you have to know that these guys who live in cages, everything that happens out here comes back. Like, he's going to hear about our conversation today. And, and people are going to distort it and say, oh, what, what, you know, mm. that happens all the time. And that, that's yeah. why I don't do these things anymore, really, because I, I don't profit from my book. Not that that's important. And I, I like your show and what you're doing and everything. So I, this is cool. But I'm not, I, I, I get all kinds of media people. I've been offered, get the wedding photos and there's 30 grand in it for you. That huh. kind of shit, right? Like, I, huh. I, I just, you know, that's I'm not. Interesting. It's, it's, I have to be respectful of my relationship with with yes. you know these with everybody right yes and and that that's more important to me than making a couple dollars or whatever and so I think she understands the media and the ethics behind everything and and kind of works within that so I I don't know why like yeah I can't speak how but I I think it was just they um were under the guise that this Rolling Stone thing was going to be favorable and it was you know they still. A lot of people around Charlie think he's going to get out. You know, there's all always kind of mm-hmm. internet stuff where, you know, free Charlie. <laughs> yeah. I think he's resigned to being where he is. You know, and again, and the guy isn't at all what you think. And so when I hear, like, all the strong psycho killer, blah blah, you know, it, yeah. It, you know, when I ask him, it's like I asked him that. It's like, what are you going to do? You know, if you got out, what would you do? And he's like. I'd sit down and look at a tree. I haven't seen a tree since like '84 or something. Mm, you know, mm. like it, it's a way. It's a, and then the thing you would like, you know, like the weirdest revelation was I like I had an opportunity. This publisher wanted to put my book out in Spanish and German, and I own the language rights to it, and I was all excited about this. Yeah. And so I talked to him about it, and he's like, "No, the, the time's not now, right?" And I thought he was being an ass because this was an opportunity, right? And then right. I find out like six months later, he didn't want me to do it because he didn't think I was dealing with everything else <laughs> well enough, you know? Hmm. I never thought the guy had that in him, you know? You mean in your own life and the things that you were... Yeah, the other drama I was dealing with with the book and everything was mm-hmm. a, like a little much, right? So, uh-huh. huh. so it, it's, it's kind of interesting the way... And, and he likes he, that attention, the whole serial killer, and, you know, you'll ask him who's... He's the you know number one, and he's recognizable, and he you know all of that stuff fascinates him like to a degree. But he, in, in the big scheme of things, it's it's you know I, I work with more threatening people like <laughs> I, I've met more charismatic charismatic homeless people at Salvation Army. You know, uh-huh. like I, I I see it differently. You know, I really do. But you can't deny that notoriety and that fame and that attracts people, and people exploit that and and you know and, and he's seen that a million times. You know. 
Yes. Um, you know, it, it's interesting that, um, you know, when, when you look at, the, at his past, well, first of all, people see him, think of Charles Manson, and they, they think of a picture of, a more recent picture of him. And when mm-hmm. you look at pictures of him from when he was younger and during the day, I mean, before he was in prison, um, mm-hmm. he was a very attractive, very sexy guy. Uh, mm-hmm. Add to that being a musician, you know, a real bad boy. I mean, you know, yeah. had the sex appeal, the allure of a bad boy before any of the murders. Um, sure. And, and, um, and, and so you can understand how he had, uh, before he got, you know, to be in prison and all that, how, um, he w- was able to attract women to be his family. So. Yeah, and I, I think. The guy, like, he knows how to read people. He knows how to build you up. He can destroy you equally as well, right? Yes. He knows He knows that he's a, you know, he's a pop psychologist. You know, he does all this kind of stuff, right? Like, uh, what was, yeah, we're talking about simple magic one night, like spells and crap, right? You know, and just the way he kind of sees things. And, and time is different for him because he can, he does things like he'll, He'll set people up, like relationships, or get you know introduce people, and then he'll sit back and watch and see how they treat each other, and then that you know then that determines whether they're trustworthy or not, right? Mm-hmm. So he he's he, he's always amusing himself with relationships and keeping busy, and and I think his appeal is on on so many levels because you have a the guy you got the whole '60s and and the murders and and all that nostalgia, and then you got. Um, the whole, like all of that, and then he's also the musician side of things and the artist, and then you got now he's coming out, you know, like as a philosopher, which is kind of mind blowing, you know. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. You mean about the um, environment and so on? Well, that and there's there's other things. I mean, the guy spent half of his like at least thirty years in solitary confinement, right? Like nowadays, how uh, is someone going to get by three days without a phone? It's going to destroy them, of course. Right. And so he he has insights into things that's not jargon, like you know, mm-hmm. um, it, it's it's pretty amazing. And so he he like all this stuff when he, he since the book came out, he's been thrown in the hole two or three times, and and one was like a year stay, and so you just kind of get mail from him, and um, he needs to do that to get away from people. Like he mm-hmm. just can't deal with all this pressure and stuff, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of mm-hmm. self-imposed in a way, you know. Well. You know, it, what's interesting is if he were on trial today, mm-hmm. some of the things that you were starting to talk about, um, yeah. where, you know, whether it's a psychiatric defense, not guilty mm-hmm. by reason of insanity, or, um, you know, looking at these relationships more and, what, and the drugs and the influence of all of that, I mean, I think maybe today, maybe he wouldn't have gotten as, um, as been found guilty of all of those murders if he was on trial today. No, there's no way he would have been been charged today. You know that wouldn't have happened. I, I I can't see it. You know, and and even Nixon called. You know, said he was guilty before the trial started. You know, that kind of stuff. And then he'll tell you things, and you think, well, that's kind of crazy. And then, like, he was never a hippie. He was never. You know, that wasn't really him. But when they kept him in jail for like a, before the trial, which was like I don't know what the lead up is, like eight months a year or whatever. They wouldn't let him shave or cut his hair or anything, you know, because they wanted him to present like he was a hippie. And and I think this, I asked him this and he denies it, but I think the whole hippie movement was getting organized and they had a voice and they were, you know, Vietnam was, you know, 
on everyone's minds, and there were a lot of, you know, people are getting militant and organized to stop these kind of things, and, and it was the hippie movement actually had some momentum, and I think once those murders happened, and they, re, you know, it became like, this is what hippies do, you know, and mm-hmm. he became the poster child. Mm-hmm. Overnight, you couldn't hitchhike anywhere. Everyone bought a gun, you know, it totally changed, you know, leveled the playing field. It was over, you know. Um, so I, th- I think that, you know, that was a, a huge thing. And you got to remember, like, Hollywood's always been deviant and, and it's, it's extremely corrupt. And you want to talk psychopaths, that whole world. And he was a part of that. So there's a lot of drugs and there's a lot of crazy stuff going in on that house, you know. There was, like, they were filming all these crazy, like, porn was a new thing. And they just had a, you know, Roman was a film director. So they all knew each other. They partied with these girls, you know. Um, I, I met Alice, I was talking to Alice Cooper, uh, like, last month or a couple months ago, and he said that when those murders happened, he they all knew the girls because they were at every party they went to, you know, mm. that they were just all, you know, and then they associated with what had happened. So they, they, they were extremely connected, you know, and, and I think in the celebrity world, they all those girls knew, they all knew, everyone knew everyone, right? Well, you know, it is interesting hearing this side of it, um, because I think, I mean, to some degree, like I was watching a, an interview of Star, and she was talking about how the media has caused, you know, created this image of who he is, and um, mm-hmm. like the, like I was saying, the baddest of the bad, and serial murderer, and so on, and that that's it has kind of carried on. It is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't say you've convinced me a hundred percent, but it is interesting to look at the possibility of the other side. And as a because one of the things that I do, sort of my day job is mm-hmm. um, as a psychiatric expert witness. And so yeah, yeah. Um, I can imagine if I were called in by his attorneys that um, there would be, well, first of all, I'd be bringing up the whole poor childhood situation to get some sympathy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this poor rejected child who didn't really know his father and, and you know, had this rejecting mother and so on um, that, that caused him to make families because he didn't really have one. Um, mm-hmm and on and on and on, I mean, I could see at least being able to present a, a picture that um, might put some question into um, the picture that we've been sold for all these years. So, yeah. um, so it is really interesting. Well, I, I guess if he does go forward and marries bad girl, Afton Elaine Burton, <laughs> mm-hmm. maybe the two of you um, can dig up some of these um, can dig up some of these things and put some question marks in people's minds. Not that, I mean, well, I guess he is going to be getting... When is his next parole hearing? Uh, he refuses to go to them now, so uh, oh, I really? don't think it's... Yeah, it, it's, it's a ways away. Well, I think um, Star will want to encourage him to go to them, won't she? You can't encourage that guy to do nothing. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's like, it's... He's actually more childlike than people think, which is, it's funny for me because, like, I kind of know the guy and then you, you hear the public image of everything yes. and he can't deal with stuff very well. Like, he, you know, he tantrums a little, little bit and he's, you know. So what kinda, psychiatric diagnosis most, would you give him? He's the most grandiose person I've ever met, you know. Um, Borderline? He's everything. I, like, I'm, he, I'm, he could be, he could be, um fetal alcohol syndrome I don't know I'm assuming mm, yeah he's, he's head injured he's you know he's been beat up a lot he's probably got some kind of 
paranoia, you know, but that's look at that environment too, right? Like you, you take him out, then you're a celebrity. So it's there's all kinds yes. of stuff. Um, you know, the, the, the drug. We have a love-hate relationship, right? Yeah, what? Like he, um, oh, goodness, that's music. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Telling us that this time it's not just the segment's over, but our show is over. You have been a, uh, you've been just fascinating. Um, I wish you all the best with all of this. Um, please, <laughs> it's like for me, it's like bad boy versus bad girl. That's how I see it because <laughs> that's my perspective. I don't know who's going to win, who's going to break the heart of the other. I mean, that's what it is. They're all bad boys and bad girls are heartbreakers, and they come from dysfunctional relationships with the opposite sex parent. So for me, it's that's how I see it. But. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyhow, I, I think um, I think this is all fascinating. I think you absolutely have to write the next book. There's certainly more here to write about. And um, let me again tell my listeners. Uh, my guest again is Marlon Marinick. His book is Charles Manson Now, and look for the Now Now, the subsequent, the, the sequel well, to Now. <laughs> th- that's a ways away, and again, I'd have to talk to him if that's cool or not. Okay. But, um, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah. Oh, thank oh, you, Dr. Carroll. You're very welcome, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carroll's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 